In recent months, peace has been a very prominent topic on the minds of people throughout the world. When world peace was threatened, many countries found themselves engaged in war. The news media have shown vivid images of the ravages, suffering, and destruction of war and the turmoil it causes in individuals. It causes deep anxiety and disrupts families, employment, and schooling. It consumes resources that could be used to better advantage elsewhere. We are most grateful that the Gulf War ended more quickly and with fewer casualties than expected. Our hearts are filled with compassion for the families on all sides who lost loved ones and for the innocent victims of war, especially the children. We pray now for a lasting peace when men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither shall they learn war anymore. In the scriptures, peace means either freedom from strife, contention, conflict, or war, or an inner calm and comfort born of the Spirit that is a gift of God to all of His children. An assurance and serenity within a person's heart. The dictionary definition states that peace is a state of tranquility or quiet freedom from disquieting thoughts or emotions and harmony in personal relations. While we yearn for peace, we live in a world burdened with hunger, pain, anguish, loneliness, sickness, and sorrow. We see divorce with all its attendant conflict and heartache, especially among the innocent children caught in the middle. Wayward, disobedient children cause their parents grief and anxiety. Financial problems cause distress and loss of self-respect. Some loved ones slip into sin and wickedness, forsake their covenants, and walk in their own way and after the image of their own God. The value of peace within our hearts cannot be measured. When we are at peace, we can be free of worry and fear, knowing that with the Lord's help we can do all that is expected or required of us. We can approach every day, every task, and every challenge with assurance and confidence in the outcome. We have freedom of thought and action, freedom to be happy. Even those incarcerated for lengthy periods of time as war prisoners can be at peace in their own minds. Many of them have learned from their captors that they cannot deprive them of freedom to think even when the most harsh limitations are imposed. Few, if any, blessings from God are more valuable to our spiritual health than the reward of peace within. In modern-day Revelation, the Savior said, But learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Close quote. Despite dismal conditions in the world and the personal challenges that come into every life, peace can be a reality. We can be calm and serene, regardless of the swirling turmoil all about us. 
Attaining harmony within ourselves depends upon our relationship with our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and our willingness to emulate Him by living the principles He has given us. He has extended to us an invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Close quote. The phrase, Peace be still, that the Savior uttered when he calmed the storm-tossed sea can have the same calming influence upon us when we are buffeted by life's storms. During the Passover feast, the Savior taught his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Referring to the teachings he had given to his disciples, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world, yea, shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Close quote. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul gave us one key to finding the peace promised by the Lord. Paul taught, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. One faithful mother of a large family learned to find peace by accepting the Savior's invitation to come unto him and find rest. She lived in obedience to the commandments of God and had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then she developed the practice of doing everything within her power to solve problems and meet challenges. And then when she felt that she could do nothing more, she would cast her burdens upon the Lord and place the outcome in his hands. President David O. McKay said, The peace of Christ does not come by seeking the superficial things of life. Neither does it come except as it springs from the individual's heart. He said further that this peace is conditioned upon obedience to the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Close quote. No man is at peace with himself or his God who is untrue to his better self, who transgresses the law of what is right, either in dealing with himself by indulging in passion, in appetite, yielding to temptations against his accusing conscience, or in dealing with his fellow men, being untrue to their trust. Peace does not come to the transgressor of law. Peace comes by obedience to law. It is that message which Jesus would have us proclaim among men. Earth life is a period of probation to provide an opportunity for choices. Two mighty forces are pulling in opposite directions. On the one hand is the power of Christ and his righteousness. On the other <clears throat> on the other hand is Satan and the spirits who follow him. President Marion G. Romney said, Mankind must determine to travel in company with the one or the other. The reward for following the one is the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. The reward for following the other is the works of the flesh, the antithesis of peace.
Further, he said, the price of peace is victory over Satan. Close quote. We can know which one to follow because God has given everyone the spirit of Christ to know good from evil and to protect them, themselves from sin. We sometimes refer to the spirit of Christ as our conscience. If we follow its promptings, we can be free of sin and filled with peace. If we do not, but instead let our carnal appetites control us, we never will know true peace. We'll be tossed like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. There is no peace, saith God, to the wicked. If we damage or violate our conscience by ignoring it, we can lose that gift because we no longer are sensitive to it. We will be beyond feeling, beyond the influence of that, that great spirit. Though we abhor war, peace nearly always has been more a dream than a reality. During most of the world's history, strife, dissension, and conflict have flourished and displaced peace. The times when peace has reigned, it began in the hearts of righteous, obedient individuals and grew until it engulfed a society. We have at least two scriptural accounts of period of absolute peace and a third that is yet to come. The first of these periods of peace was among the people of Enoch, who lived before the great flood. They continued in righteousness, and the Lord came and dwelt with them. He called his people Zion, because they were one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness. They built a city that was called the City of Holiness, even Zion, that in the process of time was taken up into heaven. The second period of peace followed the ministry of, of the resurrected Jesus among the Nephites. They abolished the works of evil and obtained the fruit of the Spirit. Quoting from the Book of Mormon, the disciples of Jesus had formed a church of Christ. And as many as did come unto them and did truly repent of their sins were baptized in the name of Jesus, and they did also receive the Holy Ghost. Consequently, there were no contentions and disputations among them because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there were no envies, nor strives, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lying, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. They were in one the children of Christ and heirs of the kingdom of God. And every man did deal justly one with another, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. Close quote. Peace prevailed among the Nephites for almost two centuries. Then some of them deserted the teachings of Jesus Christ and turned to selfish pride and wickedness. Within another two centuries, the Nephite nation that had enjoyed this long period of perfect peace had destroyed itself in savage civil war. A third period of perfect peace will come during the millennium. Satan shall be bound, that he shall have no place in the hearts of children of men. As they live the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of the people will banish Satan from their midst. We look forward to that day of universal peace and justice 
when Christ will reign upon the earth. These three instances show that peace, whether in a city, a nation, or, or other society, develops from peace that begins within the hearts of individuals as they live by precepts of the gospel. We see an example of individual peace amidst strife and contention in the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. Near the end of his life, he was at the center of a whirlwind of turmoil and tribulation caused by devious associates, false accusations, and cunning plots against his life. Yet a few days before his death, he said, I am calm as a summer morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. Close quote. His inner peace sustained him through monumental adversities, even his old martyrdom. Peace is, a, is more than a lofty ideal. It is a practical principle that with conscious effort can be become a normal part of our lives as we deal with matters both large and small. One habit that prevents inner peace is procrastination. It clutters our minds with unfinished business and makes us uneasy until we finish a task and get it out of the way. We are at peace in our church callings when we do the work at the proper time instead of waiting until the last possible moment. This is true of going to the temple often, performing our home teaching and visiting teaching assignments, preparing lessons and talks, and doing other duties. Can anyone's mind be at peace if he or she is unfaithful in even the least degree to marriage vows? How much mental anguish results from a little lying, cheating, or stealing, even if they are never discovered? Do we have peace of mind if we knowingly violate traffic laws, or do we watch nervously for the ever-present policeman? Do we have peace of mind if we are not honest with our employers and do not give fair value for the pay received? Are we at peace if we are less than honest regarding our tax returns? Latter-day Saints are obligated to seek inner peace, not only for the blessing it is to them, but so they can radiate its influence to others. In a Christmas message, the First Presidency proclaimed that the Church has a divine commission to establish peace. Church members are to manifest brotherly love, first toward one another, then toward all mankind, to seek unity, harmony, and peace within the Church, and then by precept and example extend these virtues throughout the world. Close quote. If sin has deprived us of peace within, we can repent and seek forgiveness of our sins. The Lord said that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. President Spencer W. Kimball wrote, The essence of a miracle of forgiveness is that it brings peace to the previously anxious, restless, frustrated, perhaps tormented soul. In a world of turmoil and contention, this is indeed a priceless gift. Close quote. My brothers and sisters, we can be at peace if we let virtue garnish our thoughts un unceasingly. The power is in us, 
as spirit children of our Heavenly Father. He and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, have provided the way for us to be at peace. We can enjoy that peace of God which passeth human understanding. We can enjoy it personally within our families, in our communities, in our nations, and in our world if we will do the things that produce it. This peace leads to happiness. I bear testimony that our Heavenly Father lives and that He knows and loves each one of us. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind, and, yes, the Prince of Peace. Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration, and President Ezra Taft Benson is the present prophet, seer, and revelator of the Lord's Church. This I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, it's good to be with you. To speak in priesthood meeting of General Conference is for me literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because I have never before had this privilege in the 15 years that I have belonged to the Quorum of the Seventy, and it is not likely that I will have another chance to do so. I therefore consider it a personal blessing to address such a vast audience of worthy men holding the priesthood of God. A great number of you are still single, and many of you are married. To those who are married, I would like to testify, based on my personal experience, that a loving, supportive wife at home is a great source of strength. You probably have heard the saying, Behind every great man stands a great woman. In the Church, we have changed that adage somewhat by saying, Behind every great man in the Church stands a surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> because she may say, Is this the boy who married my daughter? Is he a bishop now? I can't believe it. Yes, mother, that boy has matured, has gained experience by taking upon himself greater responsibilities, and has learned to serve the Lord while serving others. In short, he has changed. I would like to talk tonight about change, because everything around us seems to be changing in an accelerated pace. In the last two years, we have observed tremendous changes in Eastern Europe, and also the recent events in the Persian Gulf region have, understandably so, changed the lives of many people in a dramatic way. It was inevitable that our personal lives as well were influenced by the events around us, and maybe we experienced the discomforting feeling that these changes in the world are... Proper preparation, changes over which we do have control. Brethren, as priesthood holders, we should ask ourselves these questions Am I giving enough attention and time to personal change which will make me a better person in the eyes of the Lord? And 
Am I, as a father and spiritual leader in my own home, giving enough attention and time to my basic duties and responsibilities? These are, number one, to lead and direct my family in regular family prayer and study of the scriptures. Number two, to prepare my sons to receive the priesthood and the other members in my family to honor the priesthood. Number three, to encourage my family to be worthy to receive the temple ordinances and be faithful to the covenants made. Number four, to assist my family members to develop their personal talents and divine gifts to strengthen and serve others. Number five, to inspire my family members to keep the commandments of God and endure in faith till the end. When we really understand, accept, and commit ourselves to these priesthood duties, we prepare ourselves for a miraculous change with eternal consequences. Have we not been promised that we might be partakers of the divine nature? This means that through personal change, we develop a desire to live in harmony with the divine teachings of the Lord and to free our minds from all ill feelings towards other people. To do so will make us more worthy, even more perfect. The old saying, change is progress, then takes on a special meaning for all of us, because repentance is change. Conversion is change. Perfecting is change. All this in complete harmony with the desires of our Heavenly Father and the loving pleadings of the Redeemer. As members of the Lord's Restored Church, we have through divine revelation received a perfect knowledge of what the future holds for us. The plan of redemption has been revealed to us in all its glory. It perfectly covers our premortal existence, our earthly journey, and our life hereafter, as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Elder Neil Maxwell has made the following statement about the manner in which we should read the Book of Mormon. For some members, the Book of Mormon remains unread. Others use it occasionally as if it were merely a handy book of quotations. Still others accept and read it, but do not really explore it and ponder it. The Book of Mormon is to be feasted upon, not nibbled. Let us therefore today feast upon the words of Amulek, the missionary companion of Alma the Younger, as recorded in the 34th chapter of Alma, starting with verse 30. And now, my brethren, I would that after you have received so many witnesses, seeing that the Holy Scriptures testify of these things, ye come forth and bring fruit unto repentance. Yea, I would that you would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. And therefore, if ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. 
Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then comes the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Ye cannot say when you are brought to that awful crisis that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, ye cannot say this, for the same spirit which does possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in the eternal world. End of quote. I pray, brethren, that we may be ever mindful of these admonitions of Amulek at home, at work, in the community where we live, in our church callings, and that we may answer the often quoted question of Alma, have ye experienced this mighty change in your heart with a resounding, yes, we have. Brethren, we have to do better, individually and collectively, to strengthen the priesthood base of the Church, to prepare ourselves to carry out our mandate in the next century, which may well show the most significant change in the history of mankind, the change of human hearts everywhere, the true conversion of people in ever-increasing numbers, the rolling forth of the kingdom into the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has failed the whole earth. Our Heavenly Father has made the promise that He will put a new spirit in people and take the stony heart out of their flesh. The dramatic changes we have experienced in recent years are the beginning of a new era. In the Regional Representative Seminar of April 1987, the following vision was shared by Eldon Maxwell. All things must be done in wisdom and order. The Mormon pioneers were praised for the irrigation of the Utah desert. We are now preparing for the ultimate Mormon irrigation, which will come when the Church has grown in numbers and spirituality to such an extent that the gospel truth and righteousness shall sweep the earth as with a flood. We are now in a brief interlude in Church history that precedes a special era, soon to be upon us, when this gospel will be taken to our brothers and sisters in the Third World. There their response may overwhelm us, and we must make sure we are firmly established and ready for these brothers and sisters, for they are ready for us. They are now in preparation to hear the word. May God bless us in our preparation to take the word to them. End of quote. Brethren, I bear solemn witness that the lines and precepts that I have shared with you tonight are true, that the Book of Mormon is indeed the Word of God 
and the most correct book on earth pertaining to the salvation and exaltation of man. I know that God lives and that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer. I also testify that President Ezra Taft Benson is the Lord's prophet on the earth today, that we all may go out into the world to testify of these simple truths, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When Bob Barfus was on his mission, his mother Mary prayed each day, reminding the Lord in detail of Bob's needs. One day she concluded that maybe she shouldn't take so much of the Lord's time with such a long list of concerns. She said, I just condensed it to Heavenly Father, bless Bob to honor his priesthood. Brethren, if that simple plea were fully realized in our lives, it would satisfy most needs and prevent most problems. Bless me, Father, to honor the priesthood. This should be our daily petition. At a recent stake priesthood meeting, a young man was sustained to receive the Melchizedek priesthood. When congratulated, the boy's response was surprising. Why, that's no big deal, is it? No big deal? If he only knew how big. I wondered how he reached such a conclusion. If I were his father, his bishop, his quorum advisor, how would I feel to hear that response? Now, we often say impulsive things as youth that we probably wouldn't say with more maturity. And I hope this young man is now serving a mission and getting a better idea of what it really means to bear the Melchizedek priesthood. President Benson has said, The greatest power in the world is the power of the priesthood. No greater honor or blessing can come to a man than the authority to act in the name of God. End of quotation. What a privilege. What a trust. May I offer two suggestions to help us better honor the priesthood? One, live righteously to merit the power of the priesthood. And two, aggressively search out opportunities for quorum service. Now, to have the priesthood conferred upon us does not automatically bless us with power any more than receiving a driver's license makes us a responsible driver. The Lord declared, The powers of heaven can be controlled only upon principles of righteousness. The power of the priesthood comes gradually. Even our Savior had to master the flesh and grow grace for grace until he received a fullness. We may also, if we are true and faithful to our covenants. However, we may forfeit priesthood power when we, com when we commit transgression. Spiritual powers are sensitive and withdraw from evil influences. As Peter warned, we must escape the corruption that is in the world. I was proud of a young priest, Rick Dove of Tucker, Georgia who reported his experience at a rock concert. He observed the drinking, dress, profanity, and general crudeness of the young people there. He said, I suddenly remembered who I am and felt that I was out of place, so I left. Sometimes we forget who we are. The other day I stopped at a magazine shop to buy a newspaper. 
I was shocked to see a man whom I knew well, a high priest, viewing a magazine in the adults-only section. He was unaware that I saw him. I was quite disappointed. The thought occurred to me, what if I had been his son, who looked to his dad as a hero? I remembered a conversation between a father and son in Arthur Miller's play, All My Sons. The son discovers that his father has compromised ethical principles in business. And knowing that losing his son's esteem is one of the greatest losses he could have, the father says, Son, I know. I'm sorry. But really, I'm no worse than anybody else. The son replies, Dad, I know. But I thought you were better. For those who bear the priesthood, young men or adults, there's only one standard of moral decency. Any film, television show, music, or printed material unfit for youth is also unfit for parents. Those who rationalize acceptance of immoral material on grounds of maturity or sophistication are deceived. Those who excuse transgression by saying, well, I'm not perfect, may be reminded that conscious sin is a long way from perfection. We would be wise to consider this counsel of President Brigham Young. Be as perfect as you can, for that's all we can do. The sin is a not doing as well as you know how. The prophet Alma, who suffered nigh unto death, repenting of his rebellion and transgression, pleads, Come ye out from the wicked, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean things. To us who bear his holy vessels, the Lord commands, Be ye clean. The priesthood quorum was designed by the Lord to be the finest service fraternity in all the world. If we had the wisdom and faith to utilize the quorum as the Lord envisions it, we would be magnified before Him, and every member of the Church would be blessed. And isn't that a primary purpose of the priesthood? To bless, to encourage, to exalt? The quorum maximizes the good which comes from a synergy of brotherhood and service. Let me share some examples of the priesthood in action. An inspiring funeral was held for an 18-year-old boy we'll call John. John was a remarkable young man who courageously battled muscular dystrophy and lost. He was confined to a wheelchair during his ironic priesthood years. Conspicuous at the funeral were devoted members of his priest quorum. John's influence upon his quorum was profound, and yet he never played a football game, nor went camping with them, nor danced, nor did any of the usual teenage activities. It was his faith and commitment to the Church that touched his quorum members. And something else, John provided his quorum with an opportunity to serve with love. When John was a deacon, he wanted to pass the sacrament. One boy was assigned to push his wheelchair while John held the tray on his lap. It seemed awkward at first, and, but soon others were anxious to help him perform his priesthood duty. By the time John was ordained a priest, he was very weak and could not kneel to bless the sacrament. His quorum found a solution. They placed his wheelchair next to the sacrament table. One would break the bread, then kneel by him 
uh, by the wheelchair and hold a microphone while John pronounced those sacred words. To do this for their brothers soon became an honor for each one in the quorum. They enthusiastically followed his leadership as first assistant in the priest quorum. Because John was unable to realize his dream of becoming an Eagle Scout, the priests raised money to buy a special achievement plaque, which was given to him in sacrament meeting. It read, Presented to John for outstanding service in your quorum and for being a great example to us all. Over the years, the young men in John's quorum enjoyed many fun activities, but none had greater impact or taught them more about magnifying their priesthood callings and, and loving each other than this joyous experience they shared with their friend John. Now, we expect a lot from our ironic priesthood brethren, and properly trained, they seldom disappoint us. I remember when Dr. Harold Hume served as a bishopric advisor to a deacon's quorum. They were invited to tour a hospital. He introduced his quorum to the nurses. One of them said, How unusual. The deacons in our church are older men. And Dr. Hume replied, Well, our deacons are outstanding young men. They can handle it when they're 12 years old. Remember a few years ago when devastating fires burned out of control in Southern California? As fierce winds blew, the public was restricted from the area by police. A few families were allowed to remain and try to save their homes. Soon a van arrived at one house filled with brethren from the quorum carrying their shovels. They were asked, how did you get past the police barricade? Response, it was easy. We just told them our brother lives here. The count was soon up to 39 brethren who were helping to dig a ditch for fire protection. <laughs> a curious police officer appeared and said, I just want to meet the man who has 39 brothers. <laughs> elder Matthew Cowley once asked an elders quorum president how his elders were getting along as a quorum. You do anything to help one another? Oh, yes, was the response. We've got a member of our quorum in the hospital in New, Me in New Mexico. He was a vigorous young man, buying a farm, a hard worker with a lovely family. All of a sudden, he was stricken. That could have meant the end of his farm and family security. The elders quorum president said, That was our loss, as much as for his wife and children. So we took over, and we've operated that farm, and all he has to worry about is getting well. How many times we magnify our callings individually, quiet, without, quietly, without fanfare. I'm thinking of an elders quorum president, Kirk Barnett, in Las Vegas. Visiting a hospital early one morning, he was impressed to ask if any other LDS were there. He was told of an elderly grandmother awaiting her first surgery for brain hemorrhage. She had no family or friends present, no one to encourage her. She was terrified. President Barnett sat with her for two hours. His hand was white from her strong grip. She said she loved him at least 20 times. Brethren, we are the sons of God. We have been commissioned of Jesus Christ to bear His holy priesthood and to build up His Church. We must expand our awareness as quorums and as individuals and increase our caring capacity. 
Let us live righteously and extend the healing power of the priesthood through loving quorum service, to succor the weak, to lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. In his last tender letter to Moroni, Mormon concluded, My son, be faithful in Christ. I believe that would be a loving counsel of every father or mother to a son. Be faithful in Christ. So may we be, and honor his priesthood. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew selected these words as the conclusion for his account of his gospel, the account of the resurrected Lord charging those appointed to carry on his ministry among the peoples of the world. The charge was clear. They were to teach, baptize, and continue post-baptism teaching to ensure that the fruits would remain. Through the ages of gospel history, the charge especially to those bearers of His holy priesthood has always been the same. Teach, baptize, and continue teaching to build lasting testimonies in the hearts of as many of our Father in Heaven's children as it is possible for us to reach. We have been called to serve. I often greet young priesthood bearers of the Church as we meet them throughout the world with the question, Future missionary? Their faces usually brighten with a positive reply. Then I encourage them to start today preparing for that great experience. What preparation is necessary for this exciting service? First and most important is that the Lord expects it of us. He expects us to be involved in building His kingdom. Prophets in all ages have continually reminded us that every able, worthy young man is expected to serve a full-time mission. Your preparation must have you ready to sit in front of your bishop and certify to him of your personal worthiness to be a full-time missionary. You will be much more comfortable with the interview with your bishop if he is already your friend. I will never forget the interview I had with my bishop as I was preparing for my mission. The bishop happened to be my father. We were together a great deal of the time. He could have interviewed me in our home, in the barn, in the field, or in our car, or any other place that we spent time together. Dad wanted to make this a special occasion, one that would be remembered.
One day I received a telephone call from him. He wanted to set up an appointment with me for an interview. I thought that strange because he had never called me before to set up an, an appointment for anything. We arranged for the time to meet in the bishop's office. When the appointed time arrived, I found his office clean and orderly without papers on the desk, which was strange because in normal circumstances it would be covered with papers. But this time all that was on the desk were the scriptures. The interview resulted in a little scripture study between myself and my father. As near as I can remember, the procedure was as follows. He pushed the scriptures over to my side of the desk and asked me to turn to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 59, verse 6, and read, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Thou shalt not steal, neither commit adultery, nor do anything like unto it. We then discussed what it meant to be morally clean. The discussion centered on cleanliness of thought. If our thoughts remain clean and pure, we would never commit acts that would prevent us from serving in the mission field. All too common among young men today is the idea that they can sin a little, live it up with the boys, and then settle down for a short season before they are ready to be called so they can qualify themselves for missionary service. What fallacy there is in that philosophy! The discipline contained in daily obedience and clean living and wholesome lives builds an armor around you of protection and safety from the temptations that beset you as you proceed through mortality. You can leave home with a clear conscience. Now there may be some of you who have already given in to the ways of the world. The only way to regain your self-respect is the process called repentance. Always remember that with the help of your bishop there is a way back. Do not hesitate to use it. Next we turned and read from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 89, verses 18 through 21. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel, and not slay them. The discussion which followed centered around the importance of keeping our physical bodies healthy, wholesome homes for our eternal spirits. Harmful drugs and drinks destroy both the mind and the body and make us unfit for the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord. We read other scriptures concerning, concerning sustaining the prophets and obedience to living the laws of the Lord. After each discussion, I was required to respond as to whether my life was in harmony with this principle. Then finally we turned and read together Doctrine and Covenants, section 110, verses 1 through 4. 
the veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold, in color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and the hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance showed above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. We then talked about the eternal hope that we have in the entolment of our Lord and Savior and the necessity of partaking of sacred ordinances required for all of our Father in Heaven's children before we can receive the greatest gift He has given to us, the gift of life eternal. Dad then filled out my missionary recommendation form and had me sign it. Standing, he gave me a warm handshake and a sincere congratulations for being worthy to serve a full-time mission. I left his office with a feeling of exhilaration. I had passed one of the most important tests of my life. I had been deemed worthy to be a full-time missionary, which signified the approval of my father, my bishop, and my Lord and Savior. As I left the office, in my mind I made a commitment to myself that I would always live worthy to pass an interview held with one of my priesthood leaders. The interview I had with my bishop prepared me for three basic ingredients I needed to serve a mission. First, I needed gospel knowledge as contained in the scriptures and a testimony as to their truthfulness. Daily prayer and study were essential for my preparation to serve. Second, personal righteousness is a fundamental requirement for missionary service. Third, my bishop's interview created in me even a greater desire to be a full-time missionary. In addition to the spiritual preparation necessary, there is also a temporal preparation. Financing missions places additional burdens on family resources. This would not be necessary if young priesthood bearers would decide early in life that they would carry this responsibility measurably themselves. The new missionary equalization program has removed much of the guesswork about the financial resources which will be required for missionary service. One of the great blessings of this program is that missionaries and their parents can now project fairly accurately the cost of a mission. Savings accounts can then be planned based on this projection. Early, proper planning can help missionaries become self-sufficient in financing their own missions. It is also a benefit of teaching early in life the rewards that come from honest labor. To help you prepare for this great opportunity, 
We have recently completed a stirring video entitled Call to Serve. Priesthood leaders in English-speaking areas are being notified of the availability of this videotape. We hope that bishoprics and branch presidents will arrange a special meeting to show this videotape to ensure that every young man and his family have an opportunity to see it many times as he prepares for missionary service. Even though I have watched it many times, I still have a lump in my throat every time I have the privilege of seeing it. As you watch the video screens, you can see scenes from this production. They are now showing different future missionaries receiving that special letter of call from the First Presidency to serve a mission. This will be that great moment you have been preparing for. We hope you will share it with your family and friends as you read the letter of call which will assign you to one of the great missions of the Church. The excitement of that moment will remain with you for the balance of your lives. Time always seems to fly by as you are serving in the mission field. Your days will be filled with a spirit of gospel service. I do not want to leave you with the impression that you will not have any hard times, because you will. And that is where growth comes. However, you will see lives change as people embrace the gospel. Your heart will be filled with a joy that comes from teaching the truths of our Father in Heaven that He has established for us to live by here on earth. So tonight we encourage you, great young priesthood bearers, to start both your temporal and spiritual preparation now to be fully worthy and ready to accept your call to wear that special badge of a full-time missionary. Be like one of those great missionaries that you have seen on your TV screen. I can honestly promise you that it will be one of the great experiences of your life. It is impossible to stay even with the Lord. The more you attempt to give to Him, the more He blesses your lives, yea, even one hundredfold. So let us tonight leave here with a battle cry ringing in our hearts. Call to serve Him, heavenly King of glory, chosen heir to witness for His name. Far and wide we tell the Father's story, far and wide His love proclaim. Onward, ever onward, as we glory in His name. Forward, pressing forward, as a triumph song we sing, God our strength will be, press forward, ever called to serve our King. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. We are engaged in His work. He is my witness to you. May God bless each one of us with the spirit of missionary service is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.